This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmoud from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And this is Michael Mori, CEO of Bluebird Network. And I'm in Chicago in the Midwest, jealous of Nabil out in Kona. That's all right. I, I don't, why aren't you jealous of me in Jersey? Not cool. I have in my head something that I want to say about New Jersey, but who knows who's listening from New Jersey? It's, it's fine. I do it's not fine. want to piss them off. We have fixed skins in Jersey. I lived in Morristown for a while, so I know in New Jersey. That explains why you're not a fan. All right. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. As you know, the podcast is actually really about sharing your trials and tribulations and generating the younger audience, as well as people in transition to encourage them to come into the information technology sector. Could you tell at a very high level, what do you do in your current No, oh, at a very high level. I run a fiber optic company, not a fiber company, because when I tell people I run a fiber company, I think it has something to do with cereal and stuff like that. Right. I run Does it help you poop? That's exactly right. It took me a while, but somebody about a 20 something year old, I told him I run a fiber company and then it, they popped out with the whole cereal and fiber and stuff. And I went, oh shoot, I've been doing this wrong forever. So I run a fiber optic services company throughout the Midwest, uh, headquartered in St. Louis. It's 12,000 mile fiber network. We serve businesses and telecommunications companies, very, very, very high level connections. People are used to like, Internet at their home, a gig is really fast. A gig is really slow to us. We do services for people like the state of Missouri, the state of Iowa, Illinois, MasterCard, and AT&T. And you name all the big companies, they all buy from us because they give them huge, huge fiber connections. Connections up to 400 gigabits, and we charge them a whole lot of money a month. And it's a crazy great business because... Once people hook up to this stuff, it's like a drug. You need more connectivity, more connectivity, more connectivity, and they keep on paying you. So I have a, a perpetual employment. There you go. It's not just about more connectivity. It's also about more speeds. Isn't yeah, it? Oh, right. When I say more connectivity, I mean more speed. I mean that it goes faster and faster. One of the things that is truism about what I do is that everybody always wants more speed for less money more quickly. It's kind of like the Moore's Law with chips. It applies to telecommunications as well. It could be like your name. That could, that's Maury's Law. Yeah, Maury's Law. Maury's Law. Want okay, more okay, or okay, less. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going with that. Right. We'll have that. it up on our website. <laughs> yeah, this afternoon. You're going to have a Wikipedia entry by the end of this thing. I mean, look, if I start saying it often enough and strongly enough, it'll be. I think we just coined it. That's it. Well, this is, you're on a well, global podcast platform, and we just coined Maury's Law. One of the things you see is, just as an example, to get to touch on what you were saying, is with 5G, you know, you have 5G all over the place. People are expecting to have instantaneous communications, instantaneous video on their phones now. Mm -hmm. um, and if you end up going through an area that has 4G service or God forbid, even 3G service, which at the time we thought was magical, you can't even use it. It's completely unusable uh, because of the expectation of what your experience is like 
with high speeds of connectivity. So I, I think that that point will resonate with. I was going to say, is there a question there, Philip? No, I mean, no, there's not. I'm, just, I'm agreeing. I, I'm, I'm agreeing. I'm, I'm going to ask a question. When am I going to get 6G? Because 5G is getting really, really slow. Yeah, it's too slow. I have no idea when you're going to get 6G. I know that they haven't even figured out what the definitions of 6G are. I will tell you, I had a, a lunch meeting today with a person who's in charge of one of those big fiber networks, and the chief information officer of one of those big companies that sells you, you know, most of you have the, their phones in your pocket. And uh, each phone uses 25% more data every year. So year over year over year, consistently, they are seeing a 25% increase in how much your phone is pulling down every year. So and I imagine there's no plateau on the horizon. I imagine it's just going to keep continuing. No, no, there was no discussion of any plateaus. That's exactly right. That's why I like them. They're a very good customer. They keep wanting more. Is that the thing? Is that something that's driving a lot of requirements in this race to get fiber all over the place? Is it 5G and the need to have more of those types of towers closer together because that's how the experience is, is seen with the proximity to those towers? Yeah, that has been a demand for some time. But it is actually being beaten out by the fiber to the home demand. We don't do fiber to the home. We sell connect all those people who build the fiber to the home in the local area. We connect them to the rest of the world. That's become a huge part of our market. But the demand for fiber into people's home is beating the crap out of the demand for more connectivity to towers right now, primarily driven by this $65 billion that the U.S. Federal the government, government grants is put yeah. out for grants. That's what's happening. Well, you can't compare. You still can't compare, right? I might. Everyone's going to shame me for being an old school guy. The wired connection is just can't be beat. It just can't, can't be beat. Well, you are correct. And the people who think that wireless will catch up with wired, they are all wrong. I'm here to tell you, Maury's corollary. <laughs> there we go. Said. Why the morallary, the morallary, the morallary, the morallary. That's all. Oh, I like that. The morallary is that fiber will never catch wireless. A wireless will never. Catch oh, he said it. No, that's yeah. edit. Never never catch no yep. no, no yep. matter what, we're claiming royalties for that. Michael, yeah. uh, how did you get involved in this industry? Well, it's a simple answer for me, but it seems strange when you hear it. Yeah, I always wanted to be a volcanologist. Which, a what? do you guys know what a volcanologist is? I imagine it's someone that historically tracks Mr. Spock. Am I close? No. But so a scientist who studies volcanoes. And so we're talking about technology. And so I've always been kind of a, a geek, a science geek and into technology and stuff like that. And so when I was growing up, I wanted to be a, a volcanologist. And for me, there's a direct connection between that and me being the CEO of a telecommunications company. You're going to need to take 60 seconds, maybe 120 seconds here to listen through this. So when I was younger, I wanted to be a scientist. I want to study volcanoes. I found out that volcanoes generate earthquakes, right? Lots of earthquakes. And so there was a bigger field is not just studying volcanoes because there aren't very many of it. In our lifetimes, how many volcanoes have exploded, right? In the United States, like if you're really old, one, and most of you, zero. So I got into seismology, which is a scientific study of earthquakes, which I thought was awesome. I was going to go to Caltech, which is the best science university in the nation. It's in Pasadena. And then I realized when there are earthquakes, buildings fall over. So there are people called architects and engineers that design buildings. So they don't fall over. So I entered an architecture contest when I was a senior in high school in San Diego County. I won. Who knew? 
And so I decided to get a degree in architecture. Can you see the connection to telecommunications yet? Okay, so I got a degree in architecture from the University of Southern California. Decided that the real powerful people in architecture were the developers because the developers would, I had internships in architecture firms, developers came in, everybody ran around excited about developers. So I said, I'm going to go get an MBA and I'm going to developer and be a developer instead of an architect, which is awesome. I'm an old guy. So my, I it also seems to be like a superpower. And I imagine it's a superpower to be a developer that knows about architecture. That's, I thought so. I thought it was going right. to be a total superpower. I was going to dominate the field. I graduated with my MBA in 1982. There weren't very many people who were in MBA schools way back then. For those of you who are upset about interest rates right now, okay, interest rates are what, three or four times higher than they have been in any of your lifetimes? Yeah, that's nothing compared to 1982 when the average interest rate was between 15 and 18% interest. Nothing was being built. So a guy with an MBA degree, architecture undergrad in 1982, couldn't get a job. I said... If I can't get a job, I've got this MBA degree, which is was super hot. Is I'm going to interview with every company that comes to campus, and I'm going to make up a story for every single one of them. I remember El Paso Natural Gas. That was a tough one to make up a story for. Dr. and Gamble, Booz Hamilton, Arthur Anderson, a lot of companies that don't exist anymore, okay? IBM, you name it. I interviewed with a bunch of them. The one who offered me the most money, does anybody want to guess? There's two of you to guess. In 1982? I'm going to go with 18 What do we win? What do we win? Oh, the LinkedIn award. So, yeah, they they were going through divestiture. They were breaking AT&T. When I started working for AT&T in 1982, they were the largest company in the world with over a million employees. And they have spent since then, so what's that? 40 years, basically breaking it apart into smaller and smaller pieces. Many of the companies that are huge companies today are actually companies that were pulled out of that, like Nokia, actually Alcatel, which used to be part of AT&T, or Verizon, or the current AT&T is actually a former subsidiary of there. You could go on and on and on. T-Mobile, almost all, I bet you half or more of the telecommunications companies that exist nowadays have their parentage somewhere up the AT&T ladder. So I jumped in in 1982, smartest thing ever did. And that's why I'm the CEO of a telecommunications company now. We can cut all the middle part out. And if you want to ask me the one thing that I learned during that period, you don't do both sides of this podcast. That's incredible. I know. I'm jumping for one. <laughs> don't work at AT&T for 13 years. <laughs> Does anybody work anywhere for 13 years anymore? Besides you and me. He's on his second spell. He's a That was exactly right. Yeah, he, he looked up my resume. Right. I am I am months away from hitting 13 years here at Bluebird Network. Oh, my God. You're almost, that's almost your bar mitzvah. Yeah. What are we going to do for your bar mitzvah? First, I'm going to get converted. Fine. I, I'm right here. I can, I can do it right now. We're going to have to start that first. Nabil, give me a scissor. Then we're gonna you got it. The <laughs> so, so would you ever want to be a, a volcanologist again? So yes, my girlfriend, she says, I like spend all my time on websites watching volcanoes, like when the volcanoes in Hawaii exploded or whatever. So the answer is, hell yes. I think you should definitely visit Nabil. Nabil lives next to an active volcano. I know. And I have visited that area. 
I've been to Hawaii three times in the last two years. So yeah, I, I would absolutely do that again. I mean, all of the things that I went through, the volcanology, the seismology, the architecture, the development, all would have been awesome careers. There are a lot of great careers for people. Nobody has one career that is the right thing for them. So if you are one of those people that has your heart set on something and it doesn't work out like it didn't for me four different times, right? Before I finally found telecommunications. I love this. So don't get so wrapped up in something that you can't love something else if it worked out for you. So were there scientists in your family growing up? How did you get exposed to science and technology? So like a lot of people out there, I just like to learn. I love to learn. I still love to learn. I'll watch anything. And so science was the coolest thing to learn in school. It was the most difficult thing. And so I always tended towards whatever was the hardest, the most difficult. I saw it as the most challenging. You know, it was super cool. I don't know if people use that word anymore, but back then it was cool. Fabulous. Do you have any kids? Three kids. My oldest Anybody is, into the sector? My oldest kid is in the high-tech world in the, the Bay Area, working for a company called Cash App. She's a product manager for them. Her boyfriend's a product manager for Facebook. So, And I think that my oldest will be a CEO someday. She's that kind of driven. My youngest is a doctor. They're real smart kids. I brought them up. You know, when most kids would be watching cartoons, you know, I was turning on History Channel and watching it with them. And I will tell another bit of wisdom for anybody. You can't make up the time that you're not learning, right? As you're growing up, you're learning and you're learning and people miss classes, they miss schools, they don't take this, they don't do that, they go out and stuff and mess around. You can't make up for the parts of learning that you missed because learning is, is a kind of a cumulative thing. And if you're inquisitive and you're inquiring and you're always trying to find out something new, you're going to be successful. And if you're not, it's going to be a lot harder to be successful. I'm not saying you're not going to be successful. No question. So you went to school for, I guess it sounds like, it sounds like you went to school throughout your entire life from. Hey, I've been, I'm still in school. Still, I'm still in school. And on this call, I was on internal training at Bluebird for some new products. It, incredible curiosity. It didn't work out well for the cat, but for you, it's really been a way of life. Um, so when you went to AT&T, just following your LinkedIn, you had gone to school for architecture. You went back for an MBA because you wanted to be a developer. And then when you started AT&T, what was, what was the role? Was it, it looks like it was like sales and, and sales, sales guy. Kind of, right. That's what you it. saw for yourself? Is that like your volcanology into sales? Well, that so something... I didn't know it was sales because I was a kid. I was only 22 years old. So my dad was a county manager of San Diego with like 20,000 employees. So when they offered me this account executive job, I was so excited I was going to be an executive. Right. So that's how I got in sales. I, I was going to be an executive, a sales guy. And I think, you know, look, sales tends to get a bad rap. There's no company that can survive without it. I got to tell you, I want to question that whole sales game. Sure. That's why I started. Yeah, no, it is. I got to tell you something. It is the toughest thing in any company is to generate revenue. It is the toughest thing. You can come up with great ideas. You can be, make cool ways to make things work. You, you can make sure that the financials are right. You can install stuff. But ultimately, if somebody doesn't sell something, nothing gets done. And it's so hard when you're trying to sell something to get told no over and over and over and over again. And so it takes an incredible amount of spirit and drive 
and smarts and aggressiveness. And there's so many things that go into being sales. I think everybody in any job should think of themselves as a salesperson, no matter what job you're in, because you are selling something. You're selling, at the very least, your worth to the company. And so I really gravitate towards people who want to think of themselves as selling. And I find that if I make myself around more of those people, I tend to be more successful. I will put one caveat with the most successful pure salespeople are not very detailed um, and structured. And you need some detail and structure in every company. So don't go overboard with my recommendation. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone's selling in some capacity, no matter what they do for a living or where they're at in their point in time in their careers. There's always a sales element in some capacity, whether it be selling to the shareholders, whether it be selling to the employees, yeah. there is some sales element. It's quite interesting to hear your transition from what you were originally passionate about yeah. to where you're at today. And could you speak to being an entrepreneur? That wasn't even in the picture. Oh, yeah. We skipped past a bunch of that stuff, right? You know, you get me starting with AT&T and now I'm the CEO of a communications company, but how the hell did I get from that AT&T thing to the CEO thing? And what got me from one to the other was the entrepreneurial piece. Uh, something you don't see on my resume. When I was bored at AT&T for 13 years, please see my recommendation not to work at AT&T for 13 years. I should have left after eight. But when I was bored, on the side, I started an executive suite company Nowadays, they call those companies like WeWorks, only when I did it, we actually made money and we didn't market as well and didn't get as much investor in input. But I started a little executive suite company on the side just to keep myself from being bored. The inventor of the side hustle. Yeah, more it was side, yeah, I started a side hustle. I got like, I don't know, a million dollars worth of backing to get a lease act and all kinds of stuff. I put together this. The reason I got into executive suites is my part of AT&T, we were selling telephone equipment back then. And the executive suite industry was buying lots of large, expensive communication gear. And so I realized this was kind of a happening new market. And I realized I could hire an office manager and I could do all this on the side and didn't actually have to be completely engaged. And then I realized I could go out and raise money. And I realized that all you had to do was put together a business plan and go ask people because people were looking to place money and be confident and perform. And so I learned how to raise money and how to start a company and how to put together a business plan with this company called Prestige Executive Offices, not even on my resume. So when I left AT&T and took a job as a, what became a regional vice president of Electric Lightwave, which was a fiber optic and internet company. I did shed that because I also realized that to really, really be entrepreneurial, you had to find something that you could put 100% of your energy into. So that was a lesson that I learned at that point. When I started with this electric lightwave as a regional vice president, and have you guys heard of this? Because when I started there in 1995, I don't know if you guys have heard of this. There's this thing called the internet now. I've heard of one of it. It's a bunch of tubes. Anyway, yeah, there's this thing called the internet. So... Turns out that the company I went to go work for was kind of like Al Gore and invented the internet. Electric Lightway was in the five largest internet backbone providers in the nation in 1995 because there weren't any. There was, AT&T was number seven. The internet was brand new. Nobody knew what it was. And my company took over one of the four main sites for the 
what the predecessor of the internet, which was a government owned, and they had one of their facilities was in Salt Lake City, and the government was getting out of it, pushing them out. And so Electric Light Wave took over the Salt Lake City facility. There was also one in Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and I believe New York was the fourth. And so because we took over the facility that was the private part of the internet that the government was trying to get out of, we all of a sudden found ourselves thrust into this thing called the internet. And truthfully, most of the employees, including myself, did not understand what it was we were selling. So we had fiber, we had connections, and we were selling internet, and we were selling 45 megabit connections to the internet for $80,000 a month to people like new companies like Amazon and E-Trade, State of California. But no, Amazon, one of their first connections were for the internet they bought from each electric lightweight. So I jumped into this thing and all of a sudden it was like Al Gore. I was starting the internet. I want to give you an aside. We actually, like two years ago, interviewed Vince Cerf on the podcast. And Ooh, I tried to get Vince Cerf to suggest that Al Gore was making it up when he said he invented the internet. It was actually you, Vince. Tell him how it is. And his reaction, I believe, if you go back and listen to the podcast, was like, well, actually he did. He did support us quite well in, in how he did it. And we couldn't have done it without him. So he, it is insane that he's got branded as having invented the internet, but as much as I tried to get Vint to say. He was at the very, very beginning. So Electric Lightwave, I, as a regional vice president, I had the California market and I called on Surf Internet in San Diego. I did not meet him, but I met one of his folks. And for those people who know, it's not spelled S-U-R-S. C-E-R-M. Yes. But the thing that is amazing about it is, and we say this all the time, what we're trying to do as a foundation and as a podcast platform is kind of get people aware of this infrastructure that surrounds them, of the digital infrastructure that powers a world that they are entirely beholden to. Everything they do on a daily basis, on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, is served in some way through a data center that's connected to the internet with computers and blinking lights. There's nothing that you do unless you're living under a rock. And even if you are living under a rock, you probably need like a telehealth visit or something that is being powered by the internet. And the reason why you people confuse what you do for helping them poop is because the current generation and probably the generation before just takes for granted that all this stuff just works. My kids, 10 and six, have an iPad in their hand and it always just worked. So they weren't there. And for you and for our kind of generation that just saw it from its very nascency, because we have that straddle from the pre-digital times and now, which seems like 150 years ago, but it really isn't that long ago, we had no choice but to be awestruck by it. How much do you think that one, when you happen to take over this one building that served ARPANET and all this stuff, how yeah, much of just being at the right place at the right time, you just happened to be there. And then all of a sudden, look, it's the trajectory of your career has entirely, you know, been taken over. There's a movie, I think it was called Sliding Doors something, where there's this point in your life where something happens and you, you walk through the door and the trajectory of your life can be completely different. And I think these moments in people's lives happen over and over and over again. And I just want to say that I was always willing to be open to taking that next step and jumping into it when I saw that. I don't think it just happens once or twice, Philip. I think it happens a lot. And so right now, for instance, I'm going to say, if I'm somebody graduating and I'm in high tech and I choose, to go into this security field, I'm likely to be jumping in the right sark right now. Because from my perspective, that's the rocket ship that's taken off right now. When I was getting out of college, the rocket ship was 
the cellular world. That was, that, it was, well, it was fiber when I left and then it was cellular and then it was internet. But I, I think that that door that's opening up right now is the security world. That brings to a great point. Being in the position that you're in and connectivity being at the forefront and the core of the entire world on a go for a basis. You mentioned security. What are a couple of other sub-verticals within the IT sector that people should be looking at? Such as, is AI real? Is it generative AI? Is it just artificial intelligence? <laughs> what? Is, it, is well, it degenerative AI? Oh, degenerative. So, so you said, what other things? Security, artificial intelligence, absolutely one of those ships. The cloud, you might even be too late to be focusing on things like the cloud. And I think self-driving cars, those are my four picks is well, the, I think are taking off. So I might be so early on self-driving cars, but the AI definitely right in the middle and cloud, maybe, maybe a tiny bit too late. At the end of the day, it's all interconnected, right? Cloud is a data center. It's somewhere, it's not up in the ether. It's yep. somewhere physically located. Cloud is actually going to be connected to other networks. So yes. since it's all intertwined, I think you make a great point that the opportunities within the sectors are vast. And this yes. is just really the beginning of the time. And we haven't even broken what the data can do. Oh, well, absolutely. Absolutely. Every time I read something about some new supercomputer that gets put together that, that does 10 or 20 times more processing than the biggest one before, all of a sudden somebody's doing more with data. Multiverse is right around the corner, folks. <laughs> and this is the beginning of time. All right. So carrying on that journey, it seems like you left the organization Trick Lightweight. Did you start up another company and raise some capital? I did. It was called New Terra. It didn't work out for me. I raised a ton of capital, actually. I got $2 million of, of seed money. I got letters of commitment from venture capital companies for $150 million, which if I had been able to complete that raise in that year would have been the largest VC raise of the year. The largest raise that year was $75 million. And I got a $350 million debt commitment from Cisco, contingent on that money coming in for this thing called Nutera, which essentially was using the fiber that had been built five years before that, connecting all of the major barrier hotels and data centers in the 50 biggest NFL cities, plus Los Angeles at that time, together with fiber locally and then nationally. And we had developed software to allow them to automatically be provisioned in multiple protocols. Really neat idea. Nobody's actually even done it to this date. And I had all that signed. We had the $2 million of seed capital. I was actually paying myself to put this company together. And then in the fiber world fell apart in 1999, 2000, the money got pulled back. I was told it was like, you were about to win the Super Bowl, catching the pass in the back of the end zone, actually catching the pass, time expiring, and the umpire, the referee calling it back because of a penalty. I got that far, really thought I was going to accomplish something. And then when I got pushed over, the people who were financing that, I had eight different investors. They had invested in this company called Nuvox, headquartered in St. Louis. Sound familiar? Because I'm living in St. Louis now. And they said, Michael, I know we pulled this away. We think highly of you. Could you go be an officer with this existing company that we've invested in? This competitive local exchange carrier telephone company headquartered in St. Louis with 30 locations around the nation. So they placed me there. I did that. And when we sold to another company, I was one of the officers that didn't have a chair left when the music stopped playing. So I got together with the CFO who also had not placed left when we merged with this other company. 
And we got a bunch of money to start a voiceover internet protocol company called Boxitas, which was a na nationwide company. I got about $7 million of seed money for that. Turns out that although VoIP was well-timed, it was more of an application than a company. So I did sell it. I didn't make a lot of money. And then I was hired to be the CEO of Bluebird. And here I am. So you nice. got the whole well, story. Yeah, that's quite a journey. What would you do differently if given an opportunity? I already gave you that secret. I wouldn't work for AT&T for 13 years. <laughs> but that speaks to the timing, right? If you didn't work for AT&T for 13 years, would you have been in the right place at the right time with all those other yeah, things? Yeah, I would right? have. I would have just yeah. been the CEO of something else. Right. So for, when I left five years later was when the internet was starting and when competitive local exchange carriers were starting. So that's the feel I got into. Five years beforehand was when the cellular market was taking off. So I would have been the CEO of one of the major cellular providers instead of the CEO of a Midwestern fiber company. I would have been doing something um, and I would have been happy. And that's my point. You got to take those opportunities when they come and you can't limit yourself to saying, God, I got to do this because there are a lot of things you can be happy at. I'm super happy doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And just wish I had left AT&T five years earlier. I would be doing <laughs> something different, but I'd be the CEO of something. It sounds like if you had to point to one mistake or one thing you would do different, it sounds fairly minor. It sounds like things worked out. I don't have that many regrets. I don't. I don't. I do tell people I've been super fortunate in life. I haven't had a lot of difficult times in my life and wish that everybody is as fortunate as I have been. Very good. It's certainly a very inspiring story, a great journey. What are some of the lessons that you have learned besides AT&T? Okay, you want me to do another you. one, another that's, one. That's I got a, I got a bunch. Okay. It sounds like a specific one, right? You have okay. to be at AT&T. Yeah, I just can't let go of that one. I can't let go of that one. It's going to come back at me. So I would say some of the best lessons are listen. Listen. A lot of the top people in industry are former salespeople. And you know that the best salespeople are the ones that listen. So listen to the people around you. Listen to your employees. Listen to your investors. Listen to your customers. Listen to your friends. Listen to your family. And try to make a difference. That's a, really try to make a difference. When I was growing up, I was a little self-centered. I grew up in California. To give you an idea, my goal in life was to own a BMW. So as to let you know how, how shallow, no, 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 just a BMW, no, not particularly, but to see how shallow that was and how over my lifetime, I realized that those kind of things, things are not important, but making a difference is. And so I think that starts with listening. If you're not listening, it's awfully darn hard to make a difference. And that applies in a business, right? I'm listening to the investors. I'm listening to what's going on in my community, right? I'm, what's going on in the world. I can make the best decisions and I can feel good about those decisions. And the corollary to this is don't lie, cheat, and steal. Don't do it, right? A lot of people, you know, they think, oh, well, I'll take a shortcut on this one. Don't do it. It's not worth it. I had a friend of my father's when I decided I was going to go to graduate school in business. And he said, oh, you're going to go to graduate school. Essentially, he said, so to get ahead in business, you're going to need to lie, cheat, and steal. And I looked at him and I said, two things. Mr. Seymour was his name. Number one, I don't believe you need to lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead. And number two, if I have to lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead, then I'm not getting ahead. And people 
can sense when they can trust you and that you care about them and that you're listening to them. And I'm telling you, money flows to people like that. Employees flow to people like that. Customers flow to people like that. The world is your oyster if you can listen, be honest and ethical and a trusting, caring person. People always used to tell me, you have two ears and one mouth, act like it. And I've never been able to live up to it, but I'll try, to, I'll try to make you proud of my no, I, I, I have the same problem. I absolutely talk too much, but uh, you know, do what I say, not what I, <laughs> not what I, what I do, but very good. What would you tell, or what would be a good advice for the younger generation? You've shared a lot, a lot, but if you were to summarize that, what would be a couple of advice that you would want to give the younger generation? Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about kind of a work and a career thing here, right? And a technology career stuff, right? So I see this so often, it drives me crazy, young, bright, energetic people who let the world and the job market kind of come to them instead of making it, going out proactively, figuring out where's the best place for you to be, what's the best job for you to go after, what's the best thing for you to train in that'll make you the happiest. And if you, instead of just wait, oh, well, I, why'd you take that job? I took that job because they offered it to me and it was a good job and paid a lot of money. And oh my God. And then, well, why'd you go to another job after two years? Because they came and offered me a job and it's a good job and paid me a lot of money. And instead of driving for what you think is going to be really successful, I think it's not good that people change jobs so often nowadays. I think that if you spend more time trying to figure out proactively where you should go, what can make things happen for you, you're going to find the right place more often and you're going to be happier in those places and you're going to move up because moving sideways doesn't really help you much. It doesn't. I became a CEO in the third company I worked for. Okay. I've been a CEO ever since. How did I do that? I did it because I chose great companies. I moved up in those companies. I made a difference in those companies. And then when it made sense for me to leave, sometimes five years too late, I moved on to the next thing and I spent one a lot time, of one time, five years ago. And I try to figure out what that is. And I just don't see people nowadays doing that. Um, I know several people that I've been coaching go out and look at lists of some of the best companies to get ahead in your lifetime. Go, go interview with those. Go find people you know in those companies so they can refer you into those companies so you can have interviews with great people. Don't just go posting your name into job boards and stuff like that. But Take control of that and you will be more successful. And it drives me crazy. I, I tell you what, I almost want to do career coaching for, for younger people right now because I just, it, it drives me crazy how they just jump from place to place, whatever is the next best thing instead of taking control of their career. Since we are being very candid about this, what are your thoughts on the fact that there is no commitment levels, culturally speaking, in America? Yeah. Employers are not committed. So why would employees be committed? How, how do we address that? How do we bridge that gap? And well, first, that of all, of first of all, I disagree with you. Let's start there. Now, what's the basis of me disagreeing with you? I do believe that it's less than it used to be, right? Okay. But I disagree that it's gone. And the average employee at Bluebird stays for eight or nine years. Okay. And why is that? Because we look for people who aren't that person you just described, Abel, right? We seek people 
that want to accomplish something and that want to have a commitment and want to have a fulfilling environment and a fulfilling career. So we're looking for those people. Why there's no commitment? I wish I knew. I also don't think it's good for you just to commit to something, just to commit to something, right? Think that the reason that there's not as much commitment anymore is because communication is so much easier nowadays. The just like social media has created a new environment in the social sphere, right? Same kind of thing has created a new environment in business where there's so much information about what else there is and who else they can talk to and everybody's talking to everybody else that it becomes simpler and easier to move jobs. And then, then people begin to accept it as the norm. Not at Bluebird. We don't accept it as the norm here at Bluebird. If you come to me with a resume with a change every two years, you're going to get interviewed here. And if companies want to have an environment, maybe where they have a little bit more commitment, it has to be a two-way street. They have to really care about the employees, do stuff for the employees, but they also have to look at the employees when they're interviewing them and what their backgrounds are and make sure that they have the kind of character that, that your company is going to put to that every day. And you want an employee that's likely to put the effort in the other way. If you look at some of the larger companies, the things that make the news the most, you have these companies that are just not thoughtful about the way they hire. They just, they scale way too quickly because they're responding to market dynamics in the moment. And then they have these huge layoffs, which sours everybody. So it kind of reinforces the opposite effect of what you're trying to bring out of them. I think the advice of everyone looking at themselves and trying to define what they want their story to be, like what they want their trajectory to be, where they see their place is incredibly prescient. And I think it's incredibly rare because people are just reacting to these, like, my company is going to lay me off and I can't follow this, this thing. You know, you have to balance the fact that people need to put food on the table. People need health insurance, which is a huge issue in this country that isn't necessarily a huge issue in others where people are tied to their employment to get health care, which is crazy. But at the same time, I think it totally makes sense that if you as an employer can be thoughtful about who you hire and actually scale in a way that an makes appropriate sense. manner, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem is that a lot of companies run into high, large growth phases, okay? Bluebird's been, we're average 15% annual gross revenue increase every year for the last five, six years. So it's huge guys. But there's a tendency when you're growing like that to start hiring and hiring and hiring and hiring. Now it drives my employees crazy, okay? But I always, I'm really cautious about hiring. Yeah, we're growing like crazy. We need these people. I said, let me tell you something. If I just go higher and higher and higher and higher, it might solve my problem short term. What happens when the demand goes down and I have to let these people go? And so at Bluebird, we work really hard to not get over too big so that we don't have to lay people off. We usually go out and get contractors when we see spikes. We're very thoughtful about the hiring. To date, Bluebird has never had a layoff. To date. I don't have any well, words here, but I got, you know. Here, I'll do it for you. You make a great point. I think stats are the stats, unfortunately. 3.8 years in America is the general number, is what an average yeah. tenure is. In the high-tech market segment, I'm looking at roughly about 10.7 months before people yes. move out. Oh. It's scary. Now, you are yeah. an exception to the case, right? And that goes to say, as an employee, when you're looking for opportunities, these are some things that you should look at, questions you should ask, what's an average tenure. And I think it's also time as leadership in the sector 
that we need to not look at a hockey stick effect. We need to scale it up whereby we don't have these massive layoffs. Organizations like AT&T, Facebook, Meta, Microsoft have had these rifts over the last few months. And just it's very, very scary whereby it reduces that level of commitment for people coming into the space. So there's a lot that needs to be done. And we, we, we're going to call it the Mori Law. <laughs> or the moral area. Uh, the moral the moral area. And I like that. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I think it goes back to, to leadership. It goes back to employers being committed to the employees and how they're going to scale up their businesses. And from an employee perspective, people entering the space, they should ask these qualifying questions as a part of their career getting this space. Yeah. I agree. Very good. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time and sharing your journey with us. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Anytime you're out in Hawaii looking at volcanoes, let me know. Love to see you for sure. And feel free to reach out if you ever miss Morristown. Well, maybe not so much you. <laughs> very right, good. Thank Mike. you very much again, Michael. Make it easy. Thanks yeah, for having cheers. me. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. And we will all move on. That could happen next week next month or next year. At Nomad Futures, we are confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.org. And thank you for listening and subscribing as well as your continued support.